Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, it's International Women's Day, and with that in mind, we examine the historical impact of Canada's modern female politicians with Peggy Nash, a former NDP finance critic. Then we look at the importance of good representation of women in media, including TikTok, and on young girls, of course, with Shauna Pomerantz, the Associate Professor of Child and Youth Studies at Brock University, and also the CEO of the Canadian Women in Sport Alliance. That's Alison Sandemeyer Graves. will talk to us about the growing audience for women's sports. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, must spend some time talking about uh, women in different roles and the impact that they've had on so many different professions. And, uh, well, I want to start off with politics because it's been a very controversial uh, element for many, many years now. And uh, has any progress been made? It's a, not a rhetorical question. I think it's not just a matter of numbers. There's so many other aspects to this. And uh, to have that discussion, uh, please do welcome, uh, welcome back to the program, Peggy Dash. Peggy, of course, is a former NDP finance critic. She's author of the uh, upcoming book called Women Winning Office, An Activist Guide to Getting Elected, which is uh, coming out in just a couple of months. Uh, Peggy, great to have you back on the program. Happy International Women's Day. I'm happy to be here. Happy International Women's Day. Let's uh, let's talk. The first woman elected to the House of Commons was Agnes MacPhail back in 1921, February, I guess, of that year, uh, against immense odds, as you can imagine. Um, here we are in 2022, Peggy. Is, is it easier now? Are women being accepted in that role? And uh, are there still glass ceilings and, and other things to overcome? I think both are true. I think it is easier now than it was for Agnes MacPhail 100 years ago, but there are clearly still glass ceilings. I think that we still have uh, uh, preconceived images of what a person in power, what a leader should look like. Uh, I think this notion is being challenged. I think it is evolving but there's no question you just have to look at the numbers of women getting elected in Canada, for example, to see, yes, there's progress, but clearly not enough. Talk to us about attitude. That's an interesting point. And, and I think we've had that discussion in the past, you and I, about, about perceptions of, of, of some politicians. And, you know, if, if a male politician is aggressive, you know, he's considered, that's, a, that's the tiger that we need. That's a, if a woman starts to act in an aggressive manner, oftentimes there are many other adjectives they use, that, which are not very complimentary. Uh, and we've seen examples of that in both the Ontario legislature and in, and in Ottawa as well over the years, and where women have been actually victimized and, and targeted uh, in a number of different occasions. I, the one that comes to mind right off the bat, of course, is uh, Sheila Copps and John Crosby. Uh, but but that was because it was so public. It was right there in, in a question period. Uh, a lot of the other stuff that I know that you've seen in your time in politics, too, is not quite so much in the open, but it still exists, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that the typical qualities one identifies with with a leader, with a person in power, uh, the, the strength, the determination, the aggressiveness, if you will, uh, when you when you uh, see these qualities in a woman, they are deemed to be very unflattering. You know, she's not smiling. She's, um, you know, there's all kinds of unkind words uh, and discriminatory words to describe a woman who is seen as perhaps too uppity, too powerful, not friendly enough. And yet it's a double bind because if a woman 
is seen as very compassionate, as as very friendly, as smiling, as welcoming. She might be seen as as too soft, as not tough enough to be able to take on a leadership role. Now, I will say during the pandemic, some women who exhibited these qualities of empathy and caring were were very welcome during the pandemic because globally we were, if you will, sick um, and we wanted someone to take care of us. And so some, in some cases, many cases, these women leaders, there aren't a huge number of them, but these women leaders uh, often did better than some of their male counterparts, especially those that identify themselves as kind of strong men leaders. Uh, they, they haven't done as well. But um, I think in general, um, women are kind of caught if they're seen as too strong or if they're seen as too caring. So it is a balancing act for women to strike a leadership example somewhere in between those two poles. I, I would think that one of the issues that, that you've been dealing with for so long, and women, in, in, especially in politics, is, is we tend to want to categorize people, sometimes by gender, sometimes by skin color. I mean, there's an, in each individual, I guess, they've got their own little rating system. Uh, but even when women started to make inroads into politics, it was kind of like, well, okay, uh, this is a portfolio you could probably handle, but you know, this one here is for a male. This is, and that was never stated that way, but it was certainly implied, and 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 the proof is in you know some of the appointments that were made. Have we overcome that? I mean, I'm looking at past governments. Uh, well, even this government here in Ottawa now, the, the Trudeau government, I, I know the quotes, you know, because it's 2015 and you wanted half the women in his cabinet. But the women, some of them, most of them, I think, that he selected have proven that, hey, they're up to the task. I mean, they're as talented and in many cases, I think, more talented than some of their male counterparts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you make a really interesting point. I, I mean, um, I think that... Uh, Trudeau quite wisely branded himself as as egalitarian, as feminist, and uh, creating an equal cabinet was a really strong way to do that. Um, we still don't really have a great number of parliamentarians where um, uh, we've got about 30% of our MPs are, are women, and we rank, um, depending uh, what the numbers show somewhere around uh, 57 or 58th in the world when it comes to women's representation in parliament. But nevertheless, we have seen a change over the years where women have been uh, assigned by prime ministers or by leaders uh, in opposition, increasingly, uh, if you will, kind of traditionally male portfolios. So less in the caring uh, areas and more in the uh, either financial areas or defense, foreign affairs. And we're seeing right now, obviously, with Christia Freeland, she's got both finance and uh, the deputy prime minister, and she's had other strong portfolios in the past. And our defense minister, Anita Anan, Melanie Jolie, as uh, foreign affairs. So I mean, these three women have really been front and center in, especially in the latest uh, conflict in Ukraine, 
um, often you see these three women who are who are really the ones making decisions, taking the media, dealing with this crisis, and and I I think that's you know that that's a big change, and I think for um, for this leadership to be normalized and to see women who are strong leaders but who also can exhibit a compassionate and emotional side, I think is is a really good uh it's a good role model for uh younger women or children girls who are thinking is is this something i want to aspire to and, and that's one of the goals obviously you want to ensure that the, there's going to be that that opportunity for women and it hasn't always been there and i, I agree with you i mean the I, I i actually had a colleague when they announced some of the the announcements about the new ministries and they, they were kind of surprised anita ananda's defense minister I said why not you read her CV. She's eminently qualified, and and I think you know it, it's early days, but I mean she did not, I think a pretty good job as procurement minister, and I think she's you know looking great as you mentioned. Every time we talk about Canada's contribution in Ukraine, it's those three women there, and they're there because they're good at what they do. And I we I don't know that everybody's on board with that. I think there's still going to be some some concerns about that, but we got to get over that. And and the stronger these women are, and the stronger there are in their performance of their duties, I think that's probably the best way to try to get that but there's got to be a, a change in attitude though doesn't there well there's no question that when uh, women or anyone who hasn't been a part of the traditional power structure uh, is 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 in a, a, a leadership position there is pushback uh, make no mistake about that we see it in um, in in racist attitudes that come out to uh, someone who is in a position of power, we certainly see it in sexist attitudes. And I think you can probably ask any of these three cabinet ministers we've named or, or any other woman MP uh, about what she may have faced on social media or even in person in terms of pushback. Now, that's people, again, with old stereotypic attitudes, people reacting to change, um, and, and it, you know, the goal, I think, is to say to women in this case, in, in positions of power, that they don't belong or they're not going to be accepted or that they're going to be threatened. Uh, and, uh, you know, and it's, it's really, in my view, an attempt to silence them. So I think showing women who are strong, who, who say, okay, yeah, there's this type of of garbage out there, but in terms of, you know, negative comments, but I'm, I'm just going to blaze ahead and do what I do and ignore these detractors because they're not the majority and uh, I'm stronger than that. And I think that's the importance of these role models. You touched on something that I think is key to this as well. Uh, women in the, in the top job. It's one thing to say, okay, we need to get more MPs and, and more MPPs, you know, in various Ontario legislatures. And, uh, but at the same time, uh, women prime ministers, women premiers, uh, women mayors. I mean, you know, just look down the list here in the city of Hamilton. I don't think there's ever been, no, it has not been a female mayor of London. Our listeners uh, on the CFPL in London, I think there have been four female mayors. I think the first one was back in the 1920s. Uh, so they get it, uh, but there just seems to be this reticence uh, to, to elect people to the top job and say, okay, you're, you're in charge of the whole thing here. Notwithstanding the fact that you've had people, you know, that have done that in other parts of the world and other parts of this country, 
and been very good at it. That, that seems to be one obstacle that just seems to still be there. Yeah, you make a good point. We have, uh, I mean, we had Kim Campbell as prime minister, yeah. but she was not elected in a general election. Yeah. We've never elected a woman as prime minister. Uh, right now, out of all the provinces and territories, there is only one first minister in Manitoba. Um, uh, at one point, there were several, but lately... Yeah, we had BC, uh, uh, Alberta, uh, uh, there were a number of them, in, but, but not here in Ontario. Ontario, yeah, but not now. And if you look at the big city mayors, um, I mean, we have Bonnie Crombie uh, here in Mississauga, uh, but in total, there are... Well, you've got the, you've got the legacy four. there, too. That was Hazel McCallion's territory for how many years? Yes, uh, and, exactly. And she, she set the standards. That was the gold standard. And, and of course, as you say, Bonnie Crombie has succeeded her. But uh, again, you know, looking at the top job, mayors of, of major cities like this, it just, there seems to be an obstacle there, uh, uh, that glass ceiling that you talked about. Yeah, there's only four out of 20 of the big city mayors who are women. And, uh, you know, no, no slight on any of the mayors who are there. There are some wonderful mayors across the country. Um, <clears throat> but you have to ask yourself, uh, why, why is it that there are so few women? Why is it a rarity? And, you know, if you look at uh, getting elected is one thing, getting reelected can be a problem. Um, although some of the mayors uh, who are women now, big city mayors, have gotten themselves reelected, but uh, sometimes that can be challenging for women. Uh, there, there is still, there is still uh, a different standard. There can be a different standard about what success looks like, about what leadership looks like. Uh, that 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 can be uh, that can disadvantage women. But I think, you know, political parties provincially and federally have a role to play here. In the last federal election, all parties increased their number of women candidates. But uh, if fewer of them are successful, then that is something parties need to look at. Are they putting the right resources into the, the ridings that these women run in? Are they running in winnable ridings? Uh, are they getting the support they need? If they're facing harassment or, or other issues during a campaign, are they getting the kind of support that they need? Um, so these are, these are things to look at, but we shouldn't discount the role of political parties. It's one thing to have women run as candidates, but it's another thing to support them and actually want them to win. And I think, and then, you know, the other piece of it is once they win, um, creating an environment that is supportive of them. I mean, I also know while we have these strong ministers in the current government, we've also lost incredible leaders like uh, Judy Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott, um, uh, Selena Cesar Chavan, and even Catherine McKenna, women who've just said, mm, nope not doing it. And uh, I, I think that's, that's also something we need to take a look at. They, you know, the exit interviews are as mm -hmm. important as the success stories. 
Well, because, you know, we've talked about, uh, you know, burnout from the pandemic and things like healthcare and, and education happens in politics, too. Uh, and I, I would imagine I was just about out of time here, but I would imagine the uh, today's uh, women in politics, uh, you know, having to deal with social media and some of the, the crap that they see on there. Uh, much of it personal uh, is a factor in this too. I'm looking forward to your book uh, because I know you've done a lot of research and <laughs> talked to folks about this. Uh, it'll be out in another couple of months, of course. It's called Women Winning Office, an activist guide to getting elected. Uh, Peggy, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the conversation today. Thanks for calling. Appreciate it. Take care. T- take care. Peggy Nash, former NDP finance critic, of course, and uh, look forward to that book coming out in just a couple of months. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to focus uh, for the next couple of minutes uh, about uh, women in media and pop culture. Uh, and, well, the, obviously, the social media has to come into that as well. And uh, to tackle the subject, we're so pleased to welcome uh, Shauna Pomerantz, who is an associate professor of child and youth studies at Brock University. Uh, professor, always uh, great to be talking about these issues. And I'm so glad you had some time for us today on International Women's Day. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing great, Bill. Thanks for having me, and happy International Women's Day to all of your listeners. This is kind of getting into my wheelhouse. I, you know, as a broadcaster, I'm in media. Been doing this for quite a long time, and and I can tell you anecdotally, uh, Shauna, uh, things have changed a lot from the time I started this, in this profession way back when in, in the early 1970s to where we are right now. Uh, change for the better, but you know, the, the old idea that yeah, we've come a long way, but we've got a long way to go. That pretty much sums it up, I would think, doesn't it? I think that there's a lot happening out there that's certainly different from even when I was young. You know, I have a 13-year-old daughter who's teaching me everything there is to know about social media, (laughs) and I could not feel older. But I'm also very, very impressed by so many of the things that are happening um, on social media and in her world that I didn't have access to when I was a teenage girl. Well, it's uh, because a lot of it didn't exist, of course. I mean, social media uh, was non-existent, of course, when I started in this business. But I mean, I like a lot of other people on radio, for instance, though, Sean, I started, you know, playing music. Very few talk shows back in those days. Uh, and I, some of the rules and regulations about what you could play and what you couldn't play sound ludicrous now. But, you know, they all said, well, there's research about this. For instance, you were never supposed to play two female artists in a row. Because they said that's a turnoff. We have studies that show that, you know, listeners don't want to hear two females in a row. So, and that was a rule. I mean, that was just about every radio station I ever worked at for the longest time. Uh, and it just kind of told you about the preconceived notion many people had about women's role in the arts and, and, and in media. Oh, absolutely, Bill. Women were uh, window dressing. They were side projects. They were an afterthought. Um, And even when I was growing up, you know, I was a teenager in the 80s, and this was the era of Madonna and Whitney Houston. I mean, this was the rise, really, of huge female pop stars into the 90s. And still, um, there was so much left uh, unsaid about what women were capable of doing in in music and television and film. And now all of those rules seem to have more or less disintegrated, although I think there's still lots of debate out there about who's, you know, the best singer of all time, etc., uh, Madonna is a great example of that too, because I know some people simply dismissed her. Well, yeah, she's just kind of playing on, you know, it's, it's an act that she's putting on. Well, it certainly was, but she was also one of the most astute business people of that era too, uh, because of the way she marketed herself and, of course, the way she she ran her her enterprises and her businesses. Story that doesn't often get told, but I mean, it's a story that needs to be part uh, told as as part of the, the the picture of what women were doing uh, in media and in the arts back in those days. They were dominating in many ways. They were trendsetters and and they were on the vanguard of of cutting edge pop culture. When I think about Madonna, I think today about her legacy with Lady Gaga, 
Um, even with folks like Taylor Swift and Olivia Rodrigo, there's been just an incredible um, groundswell of support around female artists that they should be able to express themselves however they like and that they should be you know, considered very, very powerful in their own right. So I think we have a, a, a huge debt owed to Madonna and what she's done for current media and pop stars. Yeah, as as those followed her in all musical genres, and and you know that's that's just the way things seem to have developed. But let's talk about and expand this to to media and and what's happening in pop culture because it, it has evolved, I think, uh, for the better. Uh, you know, going back to my you know my broadcasting situation, I, the, Barbara Walters was the first woman to do a national newscast on ABC back in the day, uh, and it was just looked at. I mean, you know, and again, I, I, and I'm not trying to sound patronizing, but I'm telling you the way things were then. Mm -hmm. uh, if a woman wanted to be a broadcaster, for instance, on television, maybe they could be the weather girl. You know, that you, you talk about, but you're not going to sit behind the anchor desk and do that. Uh, thankfully, that's changed. And some of the best broadcasters on television and on radio are, are certainly are women now. Yeah, I mean, the, the Barbara Walters example is a very good one. She was one of those trendsetters. She was the Madonna of her yeah. Um, career and, and of that that particular industry. And so without her, there would have been, I think, a lot less uh, possibilities for some of the younger folks who have come along. And, you know, still today, when I watch the news, while wow, there's incredibly talented, respected uh, female broadcasters, sportscasters, um, there's still quite a lot of um, sexualization of young women in the news these days. Uh, there's a lot of makeup and a lot of styling that goes into their look. They receive a lot of uh, sexism and harassment, as we know from some great examples of um, female reporters out on the streets and how they're talked to by passersby and how and the kind of trolling that they get online when they do stories almost of any kind. So I think, as you said at the beginning, while we've come a long way, there's still much work to be done. Well, I remember the story, I think it was a city TV news reporter who was doing an on-site, I think it was before a hockey game or something. And yeah, you're right, some idiot made some lewd comment behind her uh, while she was live. And and I had her on the program the next day. And, and to her credit, she called the guy out. I mean, she didn't just, so, well, you mm -hmm. know, that's, she just turned around in the middle of her report and just said, what are you talking to me like that? For? You know, And just embarrassed that daylights out of the guy, which I thought was fabulous. But it does happen uh, all too often, doesn't it? It does. And that call out culture that you just mentioned, I think that's one of the greater advancements that we've had uh, as a result of social media and as a result of uh, young women recognizing that they don't have to stand for harassment, that they don't have to simply take it. Um, and this is something that my daughter and I have been studying on TikTok is uh, the way that uh, social media opens uh, a space to call out people and to fight back. Um, and that really didn't exist. You know, this is like a new platform that allows uh, teen girls, young women, uh, anyone who feels oppressed or abused to talk about what happened and to bear witness with other people to what's happened to them. Well, let's let's delve into that. And, and I, I admit, by the way, I'm, I'm kind of in the same camp as you, Sean. I uh, have a rudimentary knowledge of when things got social media. And, and, and like your daughter, like Miriam, uh, <laughs> our two daughters are, are, are schooling me on this, okay? Uh, and I'm trying. I really am. Uh, but, but both of them have shown me the power that social media is. I mean, we've talked about the, you know, the negativity in social media and the way that it can actually be used to tear people apart uh, with some derogatory sexist comments. Uh, but women also look at this as a, an opportunity to, to seize 
that opportunity to to be able to express themselves and and to make their mark. And I think we've seen an awful lot of that. And I, I know I just saw the comment here that uh, was included in my research here about what your daughter was saying about why she thought feminism was so important. This is a 13-year-old, and I thought it was a very, very astute observation. It's really, really cool. And this project has been so interesting for me as a parent because, as you mentioned, there's a lot of uh, negative press and panic surrounding social media. Uh, definitely parents are concerned. Um, they're worried about data mining, privacy issues, safety, all of the things that uh, parents have been worried about since the beginning of social media have really come out around TikTok in particular. But there's a flip side. And I think that parents really need to take some time with their daughters in particular and ask them to show uh, them what they're doing online and how they're handling themselves online. I was blown away when I learned that, A, my daughter had experienced all kinds of sexual harassment on social media, and B, that she was fighting back and that she was part of um, a community of young uh, women and teenagers like herself who was highly aware of what sexism was, uh, who knew what sexual harassment was and knew that it wasn't okay. So in my mind, this opens an incredible opportunity for parents to talk to their daughters about how they're um, learning about these things, but also how they're handling themselves. I was watching an uh, Turner Classic Movies over the weekend. It was what Network, a movie from way back <laughs> when. But, great movie, fabulous movie. Uh, but there's that one scene, of course, where the, the, the news guy opens the window and says, I want everybody, you know, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm right. sure even if you haven't seen the movie, they all know that. Uh, I, I, I think what's happening here, Shauna, is women have adapted that attitude. It's like enough is enough. And and the, you know we we are a voice and we're gonna be, well, you're gonna hear our voices and you're starting to see that in in the arts certainly in pop culture uh, where women are dominating once again you know the country music awards last night there we are top artists of a female artist because they're great at what they do and and they want to be heard and they will be heard and that, that's a, a real change of attitude over the last ten or fifteen years isn't it. I know the movie and I know the quote and it's such a great example. Um, you know I think young women are mad as hell and I think. Um, online movements like Me Too and uh, other movements around dress codes, um, hashtags like My Body, My Business, yeah. um, I, hashtag I Am Not a Distraction. All of these hashtags have created space for teenage girls to speak out and to feel empowered to do so. And so when parents suggest to me that TikTok is either a waste of time or potentially dangerous, I say, well, you know, it may well be those things. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, say it's a utopia, of course there are problems, but we have to also look at how young women are using uh, this platform to A, get things off their chest and B, to find support and community that allows them to recognize that they're not alone. So part of the project I did with Miriam was asking her to show me the hashtags that she's involved with, uh, having her talk to me about how TikTok has opened her eyes to sexual harassment and, and in particular violence against women. And what we do, what we concluded is that TikTok is an incredible facilitator of feminism and feminist dialogue between parents and teenage daughters. And I think a lot of parents have brushed it aside as either too stupid or goofy to matter or something to be really, really worried about. And so they don't get too involved. Mm -hmm. And I'm, you know, the message that Miriam and I want to bring is simply get involved. You know, there's a lot going on out there. It's good and it's bad. But until you sit down with your teenage daughter and ask them how they're um, handling things, what they're learning, what they're seeing, what they're watching, it's very hard to judge. 
she talked about wanting to get a sense of power. How important in, in, in that realm is it for for them to have role models? And I'll give you an example. I know you know the story, but just to remind our listeners, because you mentioned Taylor Swift a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there was, the, of course, an now famous incident a few years ago where her record company basically said, you're not getting the, the money that you thought you were going to get from this contract. We own it. You know, just be quiet. Go away in your corner there and just keep making records and we'll keep making money. And she basically said, no. And she re-recorded her whole her whole library, everything. Just said, now I own it. So so you know, nuts to you. I'm going to do this. And, you know, to have that kind of belief in herself. And so it was a lot of work, and I guess it took an awful lot of time. But she was not going to be held under somebody's thumb. I mean, that's that's an incredibly empowering story. It's a great story. I mean, she was mad as hell, and she wasn't going to take it anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, her her record company thought that she would simply be quiet. And you know, we've watched Taylor Swift actually. Uh, evolve into a, a feminist persona in pop culture, much like Beyonce before her and Pink. Yep. There's so many great examples of feminism in pop culture. And, you know, Taylor Swift is is young. She's relatable. She's so talented, uh, so good at her craft. And what we have seen now is when she fights back and when she takes control and power of her music, that music becomes even more popular. People were so drawn to Taylor's versions of everything Uh, You know, we spun red uh, Taylor's version for quite a long time after it came out. And it was because of the story, because of the way she fought back and because of the way she took ownership and control over her creative powers and her property. So I agree. You know, those examples are so, so important. It takes courage and determination, though. You know, the the story that Lady Gaga tells, of course, about... Uh, when she was just trying to get started in the business, and I guess there was a guy she was going out with at the time, said, look, it, you're not going to make it. You're not a very good singer. You're not pretty at all. Uh, there's nothing around it to market you. And, and it, it takes an awful lot of courage and determination to say, no, I'm mad as hell. And look what she's done with her career. Not everybody can be like that. But she didn't She didn't uh, cave into that and simply say, I guess he's right. I'll just you know, scurry off into a corner. She said, to hell with it. I'm going to do something. And she did. And, and we hear those stories about women all the time. And that, I, I got to think, Shauna, that's so very important for young girls to hear, to say, yeah, you can do this. Lady Gaga is another great example because, I mean, she's an unlikely star. She has an incredible talent, but, you know, she didn't have quite the right look at the time. And she turned herself into, um, you know, something that was not only marketable, but incredibly popular. I think really it's not even her marketability that matters. But as you say, it's the way she just decided not to listen. You know, young girls, my daughter included, teenage girls, young girls, uh, young women, they experience so much sexual harassment and that harassment comes in the form of you're fat, you're ugly, um, you, yeah. you don't dress well. I mean, there's endless examples. Uh, I teach in my classes about slut shaming and about everyday sexism because it's so easy to miss some of the things that are happening because we're so used to hearing them all the time. You know, my daughter tells stories of um Uh, receiving comments uh, over social media about her her face you know her nose her lips her her eyes her body and these are very very upsetting comments and if you don't have someone to talk to about them it's very easy to digest them as truth and so lady gaga offers an example again you know of somebody who has been told they're not good enough and she's um, not interested in listening she's got an internal understanding of herself as powerful strong and talented And I would like for my daughter to have that understanding of herself as well in the face of what I think is an onslaught of harassment based on um, 
looks based on body image, all of those things that we're also too aware of. We're just so too aware of it. It's an onslaught. And, um, you know, you have to be able to stand up if you can. But with that support, and I know you offering that to your daughter, and, and, and we try to do that with our daughters, and all parents, I think, should do that, uh, to, to use these examples, of course, of people that have gone before them, but to encourage them, uh, because it does take courage. Because as you see on social media, and I know the discussions you've had with the, your daughter about TikTok, uh, it can it can really get you down sometimes when you see some of the stuff that's posted, uh, and you've got to have that that ability to to you know kind of turn away from that and say I'm going to make it better. Uh, we got a thousand other stories I wish we could get into, but our time is limited uh, today. Uh, so glad you had some time to talk to us today, though, Shauna. Thank you so much for the great work that you're doing, and uh, continue good luck with uh, with you and uh, with Miriam. Thanks, Bill. It was a pleasure to chat with you. Take care, uh, Shauna Pomerantz. Of course, is an assistant professor of Child and Youth Studies at uh, Brock University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to shift over now to to women in sport and, and athleticism and a number of different areas on this International Women's Day. Uh, there's some names I want to bring up here uh, and talk about some of the progress, but also some of the challenges that many of these people have had to overcome. Uh, simply a lot of it attitudinal, I guess, from other people that are making decisions, but they, uh, they have sh- blazed a trail which I think is wonderful. Uh, I want to talk with uh, our next guest about a lot of these issues, and, and we'll talk specifically about some of these cases. Alison Santamaya Graves is the CEO of the Canadian Women and Sport, and uh, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this on International Women's Day. Alison, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could be with us today. Well, thank you. Happy International Women's Day. And to you, too. Uh, I, I'm going to throw some names. I want to talk about some situations uh, and, and maybe some progress that's been made here. And this, of course, is, is not just about uh, women participating in things like athletics. Uh, this is women in managerial roles, which is uh, something relatively new in, in the last few years. And I think a very welcome uh, change when it comes to, to professional sports and, and their attitude towards women in, in key roles. Oh, absolutely. And I think that uh, this year we saw a slew of announcements of women stepping into uh, a variety of roles in uh, particularly men's professional sports, uh, both, you know, behind the scenes uh, and right out, um, you know, in coaching roles and in uh, frontline leadership roles as well. And I think that was a really interesting trend, one that we hope continues. Um but, uh, but I think women's leadership has been present in sport for a long time. This is just sort of like one of the last, the last uh, places for it to show up. And I, I think that it's a good thing overall. Um, but there's so much to celebrate when it comes to women's leadership in sport. Well, Alison, we were talking about that earlier with, with some other professions. And I'm sure, well, from my experience anyway, uh, it's, it's the same problem in so many different uh, aspects of this and so many different professions is uh, we like to pigeonhole people. And, and, you know, there, as you say, there are some brilliant women in, in managerial roles. But it was okay. Well, you're, you're doing that in the Women's Hockey League or in women's basketball. That's okay. But, you know, never shall you cross over into men's. And, and this was, I, I think, the last 12 months, as you mentioned, has been rather pivotal. Uh, you know, the Vancouver Correct Assistant General Manager is Emily Castigay. You know, she was just hired. Uh, and there have been so many other examples of that, as, as of course, as you've talked about, uh, Lisa Furcal is now the chief marketing officer for Golf Canada. Uh, and it's, it's fun to see. Uh, Daniel Goyette, former, of course, a gold medal player for the women's hockey team, is now the director of player development for the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Toronto Marlies. And, of course, uh, we already know that Haley Wickenheiser has a role in that organization, too. That stuff didn't happen 10, 15 years ago. 
Oh, no, definitely not. And I think that it, it, what it's reflecting is a real progression in the respect and value that people have for women's expertise and for the contributions that they can make across sport, really recognizing that to be a leader in sport, your gender is, is frankly irrelevant and that uh, men are, are, you know, are not the only experts in, in sport period, but also in men's sports. So I think that, you know, you cannot argue with, with um, the excitement that, uh, that this shows and that the potential that it represents for women. But I do think to the point that you raised that we need to really question why it is that, um, you know, breaking into men's sport is seen as finally making it. <laughs> and so possibly it's because, it, you know, women have been shut out of that space for so long, but also because men's sport is really held up as uh, the, the gold standard, as uh, you know, the place where people ought to be or ought to want to be. Um, and uh, that actually reflects just a fundamental disrespect for women's sport. And uh, I think that's something that, that needs to change as we move forward. We, we should be celebrating women leaders for what they're accomplishing wherever they are, not just when they break into men's sport. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I, I know there are some people that are very accepting of this, but there's, there's always some people that just kind of, whoa, whoa, that's a woman doing that. Uh, still, uh, to this day, uh, you know, we, we're all excited, of course, about watching Canada as they, as they try to qualify for the World Cup. And, of course, there have been some great games over the last uh, couple of, uh, we won in Edmonton, of course, won in Hamilton, and the men's soccer team. Uh, but, you know, during those broadcasts, it was uh, Andy Petrillo, who was actually the host or hostess, whichever, of the panel there. Uh, and I know I, I talked to some of my colleagues and they said, really? Her? Yeah, she's a great broadcaster and she knows her stuff. Why not? Uh, and, you know, that's kind of getting into my wheelhouse, I guess, when you start talking about broadcasting and especially when it comes to sports. And there are some great examples of that. Uh, well, you know, the Toronto Raptors, of course, Megan McPeak has done uh, an awful lot of the play-by-play -play now uh, over the last couple of weeks or because of uh, some injuries with with uh, some of the other broadcast team and some COVID restrictions, et cetera. She's fabulous. She's great. But there's always that distinction. Oh, it's a woman doing that. Well, so what? You know, they're great at what they do. Just roll with it. Absolutely. And when you think about the skills that it requires to succeed in those roles, I mean, hard work, you know, being prepared to, to do your research and come prepared, uh, great relationship skills, you know, ability to collaborate with others, uh, you know, all of come forward with confidence, whatever that may be, all of those skills are genderless, right? Like there's nothing about that that makes someone you know, oh, because this man, obviously, is, he can do better research, you know, like that sort of stuff. So I think that I think we really need to think more critically about like, what are the essential qualifications for this job? And does any of it have to do with actually playing men's sport? Um, if you love the sport, if you, you know, ideally have played it in some capacity, and if you're prepared to, to show up and do the work, um, I think that that is that qualifies you, regardless how of your gender. How difficult is it for at the corporate level to say, you know what, Allison's right. We we should go that way, uh, or are they concerned? Well, you know, the, the public may not be accepting of of something like that, and and as a result, what happens is women who want to pursue a career, for instance, in, in broadcast sports, uh, they get pigeonholed. Okay, they can be the sideline reporter. That that's okay, but but they're not going up in the play by play booth. 
And then you've got somebody like Beth Bowens, uh, who, you know, who's basically said to have with you, I'm, I'm doing play by play. And she's, you know, the NFL has hired her. She's done, you know, NCAA stuff and she's fabulous. Uh, but it took, I guess, the courage of some guy to say, I don't care. She's great at what she does. Let's put her on there. Yeah, you can really end up with that, that uh, what is it, like a uh, vicious cycle where it's like, well, we've never seen a woman do this role. So yeah. that feels really risky. And we're not sure if people accept it. So we're just going to keep going with that status quo. I mean, it, it never gives people an opportunity to surprise you <laughs> and to say, hey, if we've never seen a woman do it, we don't know whether women can do it. Why don't we just give this a shot and let women show their stuff, prove that they have got what it takes and, uh, you know, give people an opportunity to experience what it's like to have a woman in that visible role in those leadership roles and to, uh, you know, to change the social norms around this. And I think that's what sport is so great at. Uh, whether it's, you know, women playing the game or now leading the game, representing it, you know, broadcasting it, uh, it, it is a very powerful vehicle, sport is, for changing social norms about what women are capable of, where they belong, and it can be a door opener for women in so many different ways, but it does require people to make decisions to put women in those roles. And I think that what we're seeing is that might have felt like a huge risk not all that long ago. These sorts of trends that we're seeing now of more and more women in you know, management roles and broadcast roles and so on and so forth is telling us not risky at all. Let's just keep going. Uh, and that is, uh, I hope, one of the takeaways uh, that decision makers are, uh, are taking from the year that we've had that it's not a risk anymore. The public is ready for it and let's go for it. And honestly, there are gonna be a lot of people who are toxic. And I tell you what, I wouldn't wanna look at Andy Petrillo's Twitter feed and DMs oh, yeah, and things. I'm sure she gets a lot of abuse as do other women in front of the camera. Uh, but if they're prepared to keep going and if the organizations they work for are supporting them and their colleagues are supporting them, uh, we need to keep going. Well, and that, that support has to be there. And, and I, I know I've had these conversations with my good friend, Ron Foxcroft, of course, uh, Hall of Fame basketball referee. Uh, and, and he, you know, I think rightly applies the NBA because they were one of the first ones to say, yeah, women officials, why not? Uh, and it, it's, 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 it's a given. I mean, it happens all the time. Uh, you, you see it on TV and it, we don't think twice about it now, but there was that time when you look at it and say, whoa, what, what are they doing there? And women officials in, in football now too, uh, you know, it, it's it's a something that, as you say, that was just not even considered in the past, uh, and and all of a sudden, I guess somebody finally said, "To heck with this!" You know, we're going to break through that glass ceiling, and we're starting to see that. What is it? I think the New York Jets of the NFL have an assistant coach, a, a woman who is an assistant coach, and why not? Uh, you know, they've got the expertise. Uh, is is it, is it because men, the males in the audience, uh, just are uneasy with? with, you know, seeing somebody in an important position like that? Well, I, I do think that has a lot to do with, I mean, we, our society, not just within sport, but certainly in our society, uh, still holds a lot of biases around gender, a uh, lot of stereotypes around gender that really limit our imaginations. And, and the effect has been 
to then limit opportunities for women because men have held most of the decision-making roles within sport in particular. And frankly, sport's a little behind on a lot of fronts when it comes to breaking down those biases, break the bias being one of the themes for International Women's Day. And so I think we just have to really open our imaginations, um, you know, and, and question like, why is it that we think that a woman wouldn't be capable of this? What is it about a woman being in this role that makes me feel uncomfortable? And is that actually uh, a legitimate reason not to have a woman here? Um, and frankly, I just think it's not just good for women. It builds better sport. Sport needs more diversity because diversity produces performance. Produ uh, it pr produces excellence, and the research shows this time and time again. So this isn't this isn't just about what's good for women. It is about what's good for sport. It's about the continued relevance of sport, its ability to drive and grow audiences, and uh, really to reflect the and keep up with the changing times of our society. And uh, these are all good things. And I think that we're seeing that in the decisions that are being made within pro sports. They're not hiring women just for the sake of the, the halo effect or the, the good PR. They're hiring women because they honestly believe it's going to make their organization better and the research backs them up. I guess the, the one huge obstacle that probably, I know it still exists, and, and I don't know how long and how much work it's going to take to overcome that is, is pay equity. Uh, and even in sports, I mean, that happens all the time. And you, you just talked about competitive sports. Uh, you know, the, for instance, you know, women's golf as opposed to men's golf, women's tennis as opposed to men's tennis. You know, the, the money available there for, you know, for winning tournaments and things of this nature. It's, it's, it's disgusting, really, the, the huge difference in there. Uh, and I know, you know, when we've talked to network executives, they usually say, well, it's because their ratings are down. Well, the ratings are down because you don't cover it <laughs> in situations like this. It's a chicken and egg thing, really, isn't it? Well, it's funny that you said chicken or egg because that's always what comes up. It's like, what comes first? You know, is it, do we need the media coverage? Do we need, you know, how do we fix this? And I think the good news is that it's an ecosystem and there's so many different points of entry, but also everybody needs to play their part. Uh, and everybody needs to um, uh, really put value on this and be pre prepared to invest accordingly. So um, I think, you know, when we look at how men's sport has, has grown and developed to this point, it required people to come to the table and to agree, like, listen, we're all committed to the same outcome. Let's bring our part. Let's the media, the sponsors, obviously the, you know, the sport itself, let's work together to create this result. And I think that's what we need in women's sport as well is uh, a commitment from all the different players in that ecosystem to work together to a shared to a shared vision of the future, and and I know that it's incremental steps along the way, but you like to think that there's going to be some breakthrough in some of that stuff. I mean, I, 15 years ago, you know, the women's hockey team here, the national team, oh, isn't that nice? Uh, but they start winning, and so they start winning, and they start televising these games. Uh, and and what was the highlight of the Winter Olympics? It was watching our, our women's hockey team win gold. I mean, and for, not for the first time. And, you know, the networks have to understand that. You know, maybe you you think you're taking a gamble, but you're not. Uh, it's it's the quality of the entertainment and the quality of the of the the people playing that sport that matters here, not the gender. Absolutely, and I think too, you know, I think it so often it gets cast in this sort of risk reward when it comes to making those sorts of business decisions. 
And the fact of the matter is, is that viewership of women's sport is growing across men and women. There is a growing audience for it, you know, despite the coverage and the opportunities that they've had to watch it. They have to work so hard to find women's sport on TV. It's, uh, it's quite demoralizing as a fan. Uh, but it's growing. The audience is growing. And I think through events like the Olympics, uh, you know, and other things like the National Women's Soccer Championships in the States and so on and so forth. So the WNBA for sure. So I think that the, the, the calculations are starting to look different when they're doing that whole risk reward calculation. But absolutely, if they're looking at their historical audience, which is absolutely skewed male, and then they're wondering, you know, how is this is this different product going to play with them? We might be, again, limiting our imaginations of what's possible. Let's think about growing an audience. Let's think about who else could be watching our, our shows and, and the things that we're putting out. And how do we put content there that's really going to appeal to them? And yes, is going to draw a lot from our base too. Um, but it, it does require some vision and, and a willingness to go there. And frankly, I think we're starting to see that in Canada and beyond. We're starting to see more women's sports on TV more often and in more high profile time slots. And I think what we're going to find is we really get into that positive reinforcement loop where the audience starts to grow and they start demanding more content and on we go. Well, and I know they have been attempts. So I may remember, I'm sure you do certainly uh, years ago, TSN actually started a, a women's sports network uh, and uh, it, it lasted a year or two. I guess. My actually, my good friend Sue Prestige was was the the, the CEO for that for the first couple of years. And uh, and you know, it it was pioneering. Uh, it didn't last too long. I'd like to see them do it again, as you say, Allison, because of the way that uh, I think people have had their eyes open to women's sports and and the level of competition and the, and the brilliant athleticism you see there. Uh, I think they could make a go of it now. And and if you look at some of the content, of, as you say, of TSN and, and Sportsnet and ESPN, they're leaning in that direction already because, you know, you want, you want to cover a hockey game, you want to cover a winner. Well, the women's teams are exciting. Uh, you know, we always heard, oh, it's women's hockey. It's non-contact. Watch a game. It's not non-contact. It's no body checking. But that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It's exciting. If you like hockey, you know, you like hockey. That's all there is to it. We've we got to get over that idea that, well, yeah, it's, it's women's and men's. It's two different sports. It's not really. Oh, absolutely. I think that there's, uh, but it does require us to go in with an open mind, doesn't yeah. it? As you just said, you know, if you're expecting it to look like every hockey game you've ever seen before, every basketball game you've ever seen before, and you'll be totally disappointed if it isn't, you know, <laughs> you might not be setting everything up for success. So go in with an open mind, go because you're curious to learn what it's about, uh, go because you're interested in learning about the stories of the athletes. I mean, these are fantastic and fascinating personalities uh, in these spaces and uh, really, really passionate athletes and coaches and so on. I think there's, there's so much value that we can, we can find if we're prepared to look for it and to be surprised and delighted in the process. Well, I know here in Hamilton, we've got the nurse family, I guess, is, is a perfect example of that. Of course, uh, you know, that Sarah just came back after winning a gold medal for the women's hockey team. And, and uh, Kia Nurse, of course, an outstanding basketball player. And by the way, a pretty good play-by-play -play, uh, on, uh, on CSN games, too, for the Raptors. So uh, it's there. We just have to open our eyes to it. And I, I wish we were having these conversations uh, the other 363 days of the year or three, instead of what we're doing here on International Women's Day, and hopefully we're going to get to that point. Allison, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I really do appreciate it. Uh, thanks so much, Bill.
Take care. And happy International Women's Day to you. Alison Sandemeyer-Graves, who is the CEO of the Canadian Women's Sport uh, Organization. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of issues to talk about here, including an announcement from the provincial government uh, yesterday, which uh, caught a lot of people uh, by surprise. Uh, the headline is, is rather intriguing. The Ontario government is now offering all nurses in Ontario incentive pay of up to $5,000 per person to encourage job retention. That sounds interesting. Uh, and welcome news. I, anybody offers you a check for 5000 bucks, you 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 know, your ears perk up. Yeah, let's talk about this. But it does it address the need, the immediate need here in the province of Ontario. Uh, to talk about this, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Morgan Hoffworth, who is the president of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. Uh, Morgan, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. It's, uh, thanks for having me back. It's great to join you again. Well, let me ask you right up front then about this. I mean, 5000 bucks, great idea. You know, I, I'd, I'd take 5000 bucks from the government if they were offering it to me. But is it really addressing the, the concerns that you and, and your association have raised with the government over the last little while about things like burnout, job retention, et cetera? No, it's not. It's not adequately addressing the concerns that we have been advocating for. So although it is a a step in the right direction, we know that nurses and other public sector employees who have been subject to Bill 124 have had their wages um, froze at a 1% increase over the past kind of number of years, which does not keep up with the cost of living or with inflation. So although it is a kind of a step in the right direction, a little uh, pebble in drop in the pond, it's not nearly enough to help keep nurses here in Ontario and working in nursing jobs. Uh, and we should mention, by the way, this is not, I don't want to give people the impression this is everybody who's in nursing gets a $5,000 check. Uh, there's there's a structure in place here, I guess, depending on full-time, part-time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's, it's not an even playing field for everybody here, is it? No, it's not. It's not. Uh, it's prorated for people who are part-time. We're not really confident of what the calculation for that will be. It's not all nurses. So it's nurses who are working um, in direct frontline roles, which we haven't seen the clear definition of that. So it, it, it does not apply to all nurses, um, but it does apply to some. And, and it is, it's something. It's not the repeal of Bill 124, which is what we've been asking for. Um, we've been asking for it for a long time. We did have a rally in Toronto back in November, um, and we've been calling for the repeal of Bill 124 since before then, but kind of kicked off a 30-day countdown, which we are well beyond now. Well, and that was part of the frustration. I mean, we've had discussions, well, for two years now since the pandemic and lockdowns and everything else uh, about the impact this is having on, on health care and especially on the people that are delivering health care, i.e. nurses, doctors, etc. Uh, and, and we had some admissions from the government back then from a couple of the ministers uh, that, yeah, we need to look at that once again. Well, uh, now now a couple of days before the election, why what a coincidence? Well, a couple of months, actually, uh, th- they come up with this idea. Uh, but I, I'm I'm still wondering, as you are, I'm sure, how this is addressing things like burnout. You know, if, if you've got a nurse working a night shift right now, and she's, he or she is trying to look after 15 or 20 people, uh, the ratio there is ridiculous. The 5000 bucks might sound really good, but it's not going to help them with the, their job performance. No, it's not. So one of the things that we more urgently need is the increased supply of RN. So increased enrollment in programs, compressing the bridging programs for people who are doing the RPN to BSEN program, 
um, expediting applications of internationally educated nurses in order to become um, nurse practitioners, RNs or or RPNs in Ontario, um, and supporting nurses to make sure that they do have safe working environments by reducing workloads, uh, making sure that people who want full-time can have full-time, and that there are those opportunities for mentorship and professional development within the profession. And, I mean, you guys have done your homework on this. I just want to remind our listeners of our past conversation. Uh, there are people from offshore that are qualified and wanting to come over here. I'm, uh, there are opportunities in this profession here, too. What you're looking for is for the government to step up uh, and, and do what they're supposed to be doing, is, is to, to create a pathway for these people. Yeah, so th- there has been a bit of work that's happened on that and a bit of progress where individuals who have to do the supervised practice component to become registered in Ontario are able to do that now in Ontario instead of having to go somewhere else to uh, get their safe practice hours, which is a step in the right direction. It does it has not provided spots for the 20,000 internationally educated nurses who are here in Ontario right now. It's not about trying to take nurses who are living in different countries or different jurisdictions right now and bring them to Ontario. These are people who already live in Ontario. So there are you're seeing a light at the end of the tunnel then? Uh, a glimmer. Uh, you, don't, you don't know how far, it's, how far down the road it is, but you see a light. Not a bright light, but I, I think we're, we are moving in the right direction. And I think as we move into elections, I'm very interested in seeing what the platforms of each of the parties are and how they can help to support not just nurses, but Ontarians. It, sh- it should be a concern for the general public when we don't have enough nurses to take care of them if they were to become sick. Well, and that's one of the most elementary questions. You know, if if we thankfully are coming out of the pandemic, although, you know, we still have to be wary. I understand that. Uh, we've had promises from all politicians at all levels of all political stripes to say, yeah, we really have to look at our health care system because it really took a hit and it exposed an awful lot of the weaknesses. Uh, are you confident that the government can do that or do they fall back into, uh, the, the, sadly, the thing that most governments do is, well, start pinching pennies, you know, well, we got to do this, we've got a deficit, yada, yada, yada. You've heard all that before. And as a result, healthcare tends to suffer. Uh, have we learned anything that the governments can actually enact some long-term strategies uh, to address some of the things that you've just raised? I'm hopeful that we have learned something and that we will be able to uh, have a silver lining from the pandemic. And it has identified a lot of inequities in our healthcare system, um, a lot of gaps that existed prior to the pandemic really have been kind of blown open for everybody to see. And I, I feel hopeful that we will be able to recover, that our healthcare system will improve as a result of this. It will take a lot of work. Um, RNAO has put together a policy platform and shared it with all of the political parties around what we think would make a significant difference to our healthcare system and also social services because um, without environmental health and without um, without housing, it's very difficult to be healthy. So it's more than just what we traditionally see as our healthcare system. It's all of the social services that are connected as well. Well, I look forward to having those conversations with you and, and, and I as well to see what the other uh, politicians are going to come up with. Uh, Morgan, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for making some time for us today. Thank you.
Take care. Morgan Hoffer, the president of the Registered Nurses Association here in Ontario. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.